Well, good evening. It is so good to be with you. Um, sat here, been here a number of years, and I've absolutely loved my time over CE. It's had such an impact on me, and uh, I'm super excited to be here. Let's quickly pray um, and ask for God's help before we begin. Father, please don't leave us to ourselves. We ask that you would come by the power of your spirit, that you would teach us through your word, that you would speak to our minds, that you would stun our hearts, and that you would change us into the likeness of your son, Jesus. We ask this all for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's great, isn't it, for God to invade your life by his life-changing grace, for God to save you from your sin through the perfect work of Jesus Christ, for God to place himself in you by his Spirit so that you may change into the likeness of Christ, for you to be placed into a community of faith called the church where you will learn to love and worship God more deeply. And for one day, God, to bring you back to heaven, to bring you back to be with him, where you will worship him forever. It's great. It really is great. That's the, the Christian life in a nutshell, really. And it is great. And it seems that great that Christians should all of the time be feeling fantastic that they should go around rocking out to, oh, come to the altar. That their every moment of every day shouldn't be a dull moment. That it should be all good. Now, the gospel message is great. It is the greatest, most life-transforming message there is. There is no dispute in that. But in my five short years of working in churches... They have come to me, young men and young women, the wealthy and not so wealthy, the married and unmarried, all of them with the same sad story of seeming fine, successful, and living my best life now on the outside, yet deeply, deeply broken on the inside. I've sat with wives who could not believe the betrayal of their husbands. I've sat with people who have lost loved ones and have questioned God's love. I've listened to teenagers who have felt lost and alienated. I wonder if God cares for them. I've stood beside people who study theology, so-called professional God-studiers. And they can't even lift their voice to sing, to praise the God they've studied about. I've chatted to those people. I've prayed with them. And there were times I left thinking of how far those moments seemed from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. From the beauty of the restoration of his love. How distant it all seemed from the glory we've been given in Christ. I share this with you because the reality is that some of you may be 
or may have experienced similar thoughts and feelings. And the reality is that all of you who are followers of Jesus Christ will at some point in your life feel like God has placed you in the desert. Where you have sin, you can't shake. Where you have answers, but your heart is cold. Where you sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. But that seems a distant reality. I know that to be true because there are times where I have been there and there are times when I'm sure I'll be there again. And so the question I want to ask tonight, because I think the passage asks it, is what do we do? What do you do? What do you do when you have sin you can't shake? What do you do when you have the right answers but your heart is cold? What do you do when the, the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ seems not so glorious? Where do you go? What do you do to get back to him? Solomon is going to take a break from lamenting. And he is going to unpack how we approach God when we're in the desert. When sin haunts us and harasses us and follows us. He's going to unpack for us what we do. The first thing we're going to see is that we're to guard our steps and listen. That's our first point. Guard your steps and listen. Let's look at this. Ecclesiastes 5, verse, we'll start in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. This little phrase, guard your steps, in the Hebrew literally means to pay attention to your steps. Pay attention to the direction of your feet. Here's why. Unless you're incredibly flexible, the direction of your feet dictates the direction of your life. You understand that? Unless you're moonwalking, the direction of your feet dictates the direction of your life. And so Solomon starts out by saying, are you paying attention to your feet? Are your feet pointed towards the house of God? Now, why is this so unbelievably important? Here's why. Because in my experience, in my personal experience, and in walking so closely with you, some of you in difficult times, when dry times come, when sin besieges, the majority of us shut down the pursuit of God and we fall into some sort of experience-driven mentality. Where all of a sudden we go, well, this is hard. I can't find him. Do you know what I'm going to do? Very little. And I'm going to hope that when I go to CE, they put together this perfect service that will finally make all of this go away. That the band would engage my heart at such a level as they blend traditional and contemporary. That the speaker will get up and he'll use an illustration, maybe about a farm animal or something, and it'll just open up my heart. And as he reads scriptures and he, as he begins to speak, then my heart will, will just be changed. All of me, all of my lust, all of my rage, all of my anger, it will be gone forever. And then all of a sudden, instead of doing the things that we normally do, like reading our Bibles on a daily basis, like praying to God, confessing our sin, going to church, we don't do those things. And we wait for the kaboom moment that 
Well, we hope that all of this stuff, all of this sin, when we're in the desert, that it will go away. We become event-driven, and we believe that it's the next conference. Oh, I can't wait for New Horizon. You really should go to New Horizon. But oh, New Horizon, I can't wait because when I get there, that's when all my sin will fall away and I will be free forever. We just shut down. And Solomon goes, hey, look at your feet. What are your feet doing? Are you moving towards the temple of God? Are you still going to church? Are you still reading your Bible? Are you still praying? Are you still having people surrounding your life who you're confessing sin to? Are you pursuing? Are you chasing? Look at your feet. Now look at the next sentence. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Solomon goes, okay, you feel like you're in a dry time. You feel like sin is kind of owning you. Pay attention to your feet. And this is his advice. Listen. Listen. Now that can be kind of difficult when we're in a dry time. You don't really feel like you're hearing anything from God when, when you're in a dry time. But Solomon goes, you know what you need to do? You need to listen to God. Now how do we do that in dry times? You need to see the Bible for what it is. You simply do not have the capacity to understand life without divine help. Without God's word, your existence won't make sense. You simply don't have the ability to move through life with a clean heart. Without God's word, you cannot live righteously. You simply cannot grow spiritually by yourself. Without God's word, you're going to remain a prickly thornbush. You need to see scripture for what it is. You need to place yourself under it and the promises of God. And as you do that, God will change you. Guard your steps and listen. The second thing I want us to see is that we should pray real prayers. Look what happens next in verse 2. Guard your steps, draw near to listen, put yourself under the word, and look at this. Be not rash with your mouth. mouth. Not let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you're on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. Every friend group has different characters in it. It's just like they kind of need to have different characters to balance the group out. And in my experience, every friend group has that one guy who if you answer the phone to him, you're kind of wary because you know it's going to be 30 minutes. You, you, you know you have that friend in your group. doesn't matter if he's called you to ask you one little sentence It'll be 30 minutes, and then it'll be like, hey, you speaking at CE on Saturday night? You free this Saturday night? That's all I call for. You, you're familiar with, with that person? Everyone, every friend group has that guy. And if you're sitting there thinking, mm, I'm not really sure if our friendship group has that guy, can I tell you, you are that person, okay? 
I want to say, stop it. Minutes are important. Rachel, she wants to talk to me. She's very needy, okay? Stop using my minutes. That is a joke. If any of us are needy, it is definitely me. I share that story because God says, hey, do me a favor. In fact, Jesus says in the New Testament, do me a favor. Let's stop the 30-minute chit-chat before we get to the real part, okay? Let's stop with eloquence and let's go for honesty. How about you quit clouding your prayers with minutes of surface chat, with things you think I want to hear, and get to the root issue? When you read the Bible, it, it almost seems like God is more pleased with authentic prayer, even if what is prayed is not true. Okay, let, let me give you an example to make sure I'm not saying heresy. David in the Psalms says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long, O Lord, will you forget me? And if you read that text, God doesn't show up and go, Actually, David, I don't forget stuff. I'm God. Do you know, you have lied in your prayer. I'm going to leave you in the desert. I'm going to leave you by yourself. It's brutal out there. Good luck to you. God does not say this. He doesn't say it. Now, that is an absolutely false prayer. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Forget you? What about Goliath? What about the mercy I had on you with Bathsheba? Forget you? I'm not going to forget you. But God doesn't come to David and say that. Instead, he draws near. I fear that when we're in the desert, when we're trapped with the guilt of the same sin that seems to haunt us over and over, we don't want to get to the real issue. We don't ever want to pray the real prayer. Because you know what? It's hard to pray the real prayer. Why? Because it reveals the sinfulness of our hearts. And that's not a topic we like to deal with. That's not a topic we want to embrace, look at, or consider. But the thing is, when you set yourself under the word of God, when things begin to resonate in your heart, as you get to praying real prayers, they are the fertile soil for change. And I want to plead with you tonight. Stop playing the praying game. Stop with the 25-minute chit-chat. Stop praying things that you think God wants to hear. Oh, Father, I thank you that that we should affirm pre-redemptive special revelation. I thank you. Oh, yes, I am eagerly waiting eschatological manifestation of Christ. No, God does not want to hear that. He wants you to get on your knees. He wants you to cry out and pray what's really on your heart. That's what he wants because that's how he changes you. Pray real prayers. The third thing I want us to see is that we're to live by the Spirit. Look at verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger or, or priest that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? 
Okay, let me tell you what I think is going on in this verse. When the Word of God is taught, when sermons are given, and when you sit under the Scriptures, what will happen is that a lot of times things that are spoken outside of Scripture will begin to resonate within you. Let me try to unpack this. You'll be sitting in a room, and someone will talk for the someone will talk about the need for community, the need to be connected, the need for us not to be on the fringe. And something inside of you will resonate and say, yes, that's what I need. Or one of the things we historically say at the end of, of every night or most nights at sea is, if you need to chat to someone about what the speaker has said, grab one of your friends or grab a leader at CE and speak to them. But please do not leave without speaking to someone. And what will happen is in your heart, you'll begin to think, yes, confessing sin is key. I have sin. It's a secret. I haven't told anybody and I really need to share it. I really need to get that weight off me. I need to confess. That's what I need to do. And what that is at that moment is the Holy Spirit saying to you, that is the way to change. That is how you grow in grace. That is how you get out of the desert. And you know what the majority of us do most nights? Nothing. We go, yeah, 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 yeah. Which in my parents' house means I'm not listening to you. Or if I'm with Rachel and I go, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> she stops and she goes, Alex, listen to me. No, Alex, listen to me. Listen to me. I'm going to say this again, okay? But what we do with God is we go, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Confession of sin, yeah, 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 yeah. Being committed to, to one another, to being committed to one church, yeah, 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 yeah. And if we're really honest, we leave a lot of the time with good intentions, but we don't act on them. We make a vow while we sit here. We say, this week, I'm going to do it. I'm going to confess my sin. I'm going to get it out of there. I'm going to tell one of my friends. But then we leave and we do nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the reality is that, that honestly, it really takes a step of faith a step of effort to do these things. Because let's be honest, when is a good time to confess sin? There never ever is a good time to confess the sins we're battling with. Like when is the, the best time to go and say, yeah, I'm going to unpack my shame. Yeah, my anger. I just want to make it public. There's never a good time. And what we normally do is we say, when can I tell my friend? Dinner time? Mm, I don't think so. Let's go for when he's just about to go to bed and then I'll text him. And, and I, want to, I want to tell you this one, okay, because this is what I've done in the past and I want to save you younger guys from making this mistake whenever we go about, when we go about confessing sin. We'll say, I'll say, yeah, 15 minutes before I go out to football, that's when I'll talk to Rachel about how we got angry today and we like flip the lid, Okay. Don't do that because you ain't going to football that night. It's going to take more than 15 minutes to confess your sin. But it takes faith. It requires you 
to look in the mirror of the word of God and to see your sin for what it is. But it also requires you to look at the grace and mercy found at the cross. For in dying for every sin of yours, you are forgiven. You are free. There is no condemnation for you. And that means that you can run to God confessing sin. You can be honest with friends. You can tell the leader at CE because there is no condemnation if you're in Jesus. Nothing, nothing, not your lust, not your anger, not your pride, not your confessing of sin to others and what they think of you can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Think about the woman at the well, if you know that story at all. She wants to talk about some theology and Jesus says, no, we're not going to talk about what worship the Jews worship on and what Martin, you guys worship on. I want to talk about the five men that you've been with and the one guy that you're with now. I want to talk about what's really going on in your life. That's why I came, because I want you to be honest. I want to get to the root of your sin so that you may change, that I may invade your life with my grace so that streams of water will burst forth unto eternal life. And that's what Jesus wants to do with each one of you. He wants you to be honest about your sin, to confess it. That when the Spirit of God resonates and brings things with, up within you, that you're like, yeah, I need to confess my sin. I need to get it out of there. I need to tell people. I need to go to church. I need to read. I need to pray my Bible. You should listen to his voice and you should do it. Because that's how you get out of the desert. Live by the Spirit. The fourth thing and the final thing I want us to see is the desert is his grace. Let's read verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Solomon ends this whole thing by saying this. If you do these things, if you live by the Spirit, if you guard your steps and listen, if you pray real prayers, maybe you'll get out of the desert. Maybe you won't. Maybe you won't. But God is the one you must fear. Now, this is really, really important. Sometimes God ordains the desert. Sometimes God takes us where we wouldn't have intended to go in order to produce in us what we could not achieve on our own, our greater reliance and dependence upon him. I want us to look at Mark 6, and we'll start at verse 45. It should come up on the screen. I think this proves this point really well, okay? Immediately he, that's Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out in the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. 
And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now the disciples find themselves in another one of those moments of difficulty. They are trying to row across the Sea of Galilee, and they're facing an impossible headwind. They're facing angry seas. It's dangerous. It's exhausting. It's a really difficult moment. And if you look at the time clues in the passage, they've been rowing for about eight hours. Okay, They're going nowhere fast. And in this moment of difficulty and danger, you ought to ask yourself, how in the world did the disciples get themselves into this mess? Maybe they've been disobedient. Maybe they've just made an unwise choice. Maybe they were just full of themselves, thinking that they had more wisdom and strength than they actually had. But if you look at the very first verse that I read, it says this, Immediately he, Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat. This mess is exactly where Jesus wants them. They are not there because they've been foolish, because they've been arrogant or proud. They're there because they were precisely obedient to the call of Christ. Jesus has them exactly where he wants them. Now, when you read that, you ought to say, why? Why would Jesus ever want his children to be in this kind of mess? Why would he ever want to expose them to this kind of danger? Why would he bring them beyond their own wisdom and strength, beyond their own natural abilities? Why, why, why? I thought he was a God of love. I thought he was a God of mercy. I thought he was a God of grace. I thought he protected and provided What's up with this? Well, Jesus knows something about these guys. He knows how self-righteous they can be. He knows how committed they are to their own kingdom. He knows how self-orientated they can be. He knows that they love to depend on their own strength and wisdom. And so Jesus will take them where they wouldn't have intended to go in order to produce in them what they could not achieve on their own. Let me say that again. Jesus will take them where they wouldn't have intended to go in order to produce in them something that they could not achieve on their own. Jesus will take you places where you wouldn't have went by yourself to produce in you something that you cannot do on your own. You know what the Bible calls that? Grace. Grace. Of course, it's not the grace of release. It's not the grace of relief. We get those in pieces, but largely that's the grace to come. This is grace of radical transformation. It's grace of personal rescue. It's grace of heart refinement. It's uncomfortable, but it's grace. 
God's grace doesn't always come as a cool drink. It's not always a soft pillow. It's not always deliverance from circumstances. There are times when we be crying out, when we can cry, where is the God of grace? And in actual fact, we're getting it in that moment. No, it's not the grace of relief or release, but it's grace. And I think we need to get used to the term of uncomfortable grace. Because often, Jesus' grace comes to us in uncomfortable forms. It's in moments that his grace does something that we wouldn't want to happen naturally by ourselves. And if you're God's child this evening, you must hear this. That the difficulties in your life are not a sign of his judgment or that he doesn't like you. You cannot bring the situation and call God into question and judgment. You must not listen to the cruel lies of the enemy who would say to you, where is your savior now? Because those difficulties are actually imperial evidence of his love for you. You're not being forgotten, you're being loved. It's grace. The question for many of us that we often ask is, will God lavish his grace on me? When actually it should be, will I recognize it when it comes? And so for some of you, for some of you, because I've been there, please hear me tonight. God sometimes will ordain the desert. It's not because he's angry with you. It's not because he hates you. It's because he loves you. Right now, for some of you, the reason that you're struggling to find him, the reason you're going through a hard time, is because he desperately wants you to throw yourself under him. He desperately wants you to really want him. This has been hard going tonight. It's been tough. It's been weary. But I pray that your hearts have been encouraged tonight. I pray that you would look at your feet. I pray that you wouldn't pretend. That there wouldn't be 25 minute chit chat. That we would pray things that actually matter. I pray that you would pray real prayers. I pray that you will live by the Spirit. That times you will recognize that the desert is his grace. And that you would throw yourself to Jesus. That you would throw yourself to the cross where he loves you, he died for you, and he promises to make you whole. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Without it, we would not know who you are. We would not know our brokenness, and we would not know our need of grace. Father, I thank you for what your word says to us. I thank you for what we've thought about tonight. Father, I pray that you would help each one of us 
to be people who guard our steps and listen, to be people who pray real prayers, to be people who live by the Spirit, and to understand that in moments when it's difficult, that you ordain those out of your grace. Father, I pray that in all those, all those moments, in all those times, that you would draw yourself to us, that you would reveal more of your Son, Jesus Christ, to us, that we would fall more in love with him, and we would worship you more fully. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you all just want to stand, we're going to worship together again.